Imagine, if you will, a podcast. A podcast beyond that which is known to man. It exists in both fandom and discovery, in viewing and critiquing. My name is Matt Hurt. This is Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. If this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast exploring science fiction anthology storytelling during television's first golden age, beginning with The Twilight Zone. Each podcast, I share my thoughts on an episode of this iconic series as a first-time viewer, as well as share some trivia about the episode. I then end each podcast with a bonus review of a movie or show related to this week's episode. To the week's episode. (laughs) Uh, you can find more of Anthology at AnthologyPod.com. And if you want to contact me, you can like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod. Tweet me at ObsessiveViewer. Send an email to Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Or call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099. And if you like what you hear and want to support the podcast, please head over to iTunes and leave a rating and review. The more ratings and reviews I get, the easier it will be for people to find the show in iTunes' search results. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can donate to help support the podcast at anthologypod.com. There's a donate button on the left-hand side of the page, as well as a donate link in the show notes of every episode. Every donation made using that donate button goes directly toward the fees to keep the podcast running and is very much appreciated. Uh, finally, if you're in Indianapolis, my friends and I at the Obsessive Viewer are hosting an event on October 14th. It's the third annual Shocktober in Irvington, where we rent out the Irving Theater, screen short horror films from local filmmakers, interview the filmmakers between each screening, and raffle off DVDs, Blu-rays, gift cards to local businesses, and props from the movies, actually. <laughs> uh, all proceeds from the event go right to the Irvington Historical Society and help support a great community in Indianapolis. And as a bonus for anthology listeners, you can get $1 off the price of admission by using the promo code PODCAST2 when you buy your tickets. Um, and if you can't make it, you can still donate to the Historical Society instead of pur- purchasing a ticket if you feel so inclined. More information as well as a link to buy to buy tickets or make a donation can be found at shocktoberinirvington.com. So today on the podcast, a little late this week, and I apologize for that, but today I'll be discussing uh, The Big Tall Wish. It's the 27th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season, and it aired on April 8th, 1960. And for this week's bonus review, I'm very excited to share my thoughts on Rod Serling's episode of Playhouse 90 that was a breakout hit uh, titled Requiem for a Heavyweight. But first, I have an email, a listener email to go through. Um... This email comes in from Greg in response to my uh, review of uh, Execution. Greg writes, The Zone is all about restoring balance to the universe, and Caswell's counterpart in the present taking Caswell's place at the, neck- at the necktie party is emblematic of that. I also like Serling robbing the authors of said feet, the satisfaction of knowing they've, uh, they've disposed of a guilty man. I think this is Serling reminding us mortals to abstain from taking it upon ourselves to restore that balance. It should be the, prov- uh, the province of a higher power, a.k.a. the zone. And yeah, I, I agree with that. I, uh, 
I really agree with that statement at the end of exe- uh, at the end of execution. It's kind of a really strong statement that even resonates today in that we are in such a internet outrage culture that people are ready to just hang someone metaphorically or ruin their reputations literally um, at the drop of a hat. And uh, I think that that statement really resonates to me, uh, or resonates today, I should say. That sentiment is further uh, enforced from the first, from the outset, the first scene of the movie or of the episode, because the victim's father tells Caswell that he wants it to quote take a while, and he wants him to be in fa- in pain and agonizing over it because he has no remorse. And the juxtaposition of of the grieving father and Caswell's just lack of remorse is just really a really dark statement about humanity. And uh, I like that the like at the end when um the spectators of the necktie party are for, are faced with the prospect that they may have uh, hanged an innocent man i just like that that kind of closes the book on that um or flips flips that sentiment from earlier on its ear uh and just it just makes it like imagine the horror in that situation <laughs> um being in the presence of of something that's that you perceive as pure justice and then just having that suddenly in that final moment that moment where justice is served that you so so desire imagine that feeling being ripped out and replaced with the horror that that you or forces beyond your control or what have you may have delivered justice on someone who didn't deserve it that's just it's a horrific uh, situation and then i don't i don't know if i really went into this um, last week or not, but just to reiterate, if I did, um, that that sentiment, that statement is such a strong statement um, and such a strong uh, thing to end, to begin and end the episode on that I would say that I kind of wish that it there was more of that. There was more of that thesis statement of justice and, and um, how we attain justice. I kind of wish that there was more of that explored in it, whereas with what we got in execution seemed more like it was bookending this time travel story about a man lost in time and somewhat wreaking havoc on, on modern era, which is fine. I enjoyed that, that aspect of it, but I kind of wish that it was more, I kind of wish that the statement of justice and, and uh, serving justice to the wrong person, I kind of wish that that was more of a focal point of the entire episode. But anyway, uh, that's what Greg uh, had to say about it. He also said in the email, uh, I had asked for recommendations for bonus reviews uh, last week. He recommended The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster and uh, Carnival of Souls, which are two two movies that I believe I will be getting to uh, before the end of the first season. Um, when I posted that episode, as soon it was before I watched The Big Tall Wish, and I didn't know what The Big Tall Wish Plot-wise, I didn't know anything about it, so I just kind of was up in the air about what I wanted to do for a bonus review this week. But as soon as I realized that it was a boxing episode, I jumped at the chance to um, to review a uh, to review Serling's Requiem for a Heavyweight uh, to pair it with this because I felt like that was most appropriate. 
And finally, Greg, uh, Greg wrote, and this is kind of apropos of nothing and not really pertaining to the podcast, but he said, what are your feelings on Stranger Things? A lot of reviewers seem to be likening it to a cross between E.T., Stephen King, The Goonies, and yes, The Twilight Zone. And just really briefly, I really liked Stranger Things. There is a lot of, um, I've noticed in, in, at least in the critic circles, there is a lot of pushback against it because it, the arguments that I've heard against it is that it seems, uh, so, so nostalgia based. Like there are three, there are three simultaneous kind of plot lines or, or perspectives that are, that are gone through. There's the children, there's the teenagers, and then there's the adults stories that all are experiencing the same events. Um, and there's, uh, comparisons or there was, uh, remarks that the, that the adults seem to be in a Stephen King novel, the teens seem to be in a John Carpenter film, and the kids seem to be in a Steven Spielberg movie. And those that convergence of all the nostalgia put together, one of the arguments against it is that it doesn't seem to have anything wholly unique or original in itself. It's just a a pastiche of, of nostalgia packaged together. Um, I didn't get any, I didn't, I wouldn't say I didn't get any of that, but I would say that the, the strong nostalgic feel of it did not bother me at all. It enhanced the viewing experience for me and I really enjoyed it. Um, and if you want to know more, more of my thoughts on it, we're going to be recording a bonus episode reviewing stranger things next week on obsessive viewer. So check that out at ovpodcast.com. Actually, obsessiveviewer.com. OVpodcast.com is just the archive of episodes. So anyway, um, having said that, once again, Greg, thank you so much for the email. And everyone, everyone listening, you can feel free to email me at obs- uh, matt at obsessiveviewer.com. And uh, we're, closing in, we're coming in close to the end of the first season of The Twilight Zone on this podcast. So I think at the end of the season, what I'm going to do is I'm going to um, have a review or have an episode... Um, after I finish the season, that's just a breakdown of season one, a recap, um, top, top 10 list, top five list. I'm not sure how, how it's going to be broken down, but I do know that I'm going to have Brandon Cruz from submitted for your approval on for that episode. So I'm looking forward to that. And in the meantime, feel free to send in your favorite moments from season one, your favorite episodes, your favorite, um, actors, your favorite screenplays, your, your favorite, whatever, anything goes with, uh, regards to the end of season one, um, or a wrap up of season one. Just if you do make sure you put in the subject line season one recap or season one review, um, or what have you just something so that I know that if it is something that's about season one overall, I can wait and read it, um, after I finish season one, cause I'm still a newbie to the twilight zone and I don't want to be spoiled. <laughs> okay. So with all that out of the way, Like I said, I'm going to be discussing The Big Tall Wish and Requiem for a Heavyweight this week. So, to start out this review of The Big Tall Wish, like always, I'm going to go ahead and read a plot summary, courtesy of The Twilight Zone Companion by Mark Scott Zucri. And uh, once again, these reviews, the the summary, everything here, here on out is going to be incredibly spoilerific. So, if you have not seen the episode yet... Please go watch it on YouTube, um, not YouTube, but, um, wow, <laughs> Netflix and uh, Hulu, Amazon Prime, or your personal DVD or Blu-ray collection. All right, here we go. 
Although Bully Jackson breaks his hand prior to the fight, he wins it because Henry, a little boy who adores the fighter and who believes utterly in magic, has made the big, tall wish. Unfortunately, after the fight, the boxer refuses to believe in the magic, insisting it has his own. It was his own ability that won the match. In anguish, the children tells him, if you don't believe, it won't be true. But the fighter has been battered and beaten for so long that he can't believe. Suddenly, Jackson finds himself in the ring, back in the ring, flat on his back and counted out. When he returns to Henry, the child tells him that he won't be making any more wishes. I'm too old for wishes, he says, and there ain't no such thing as magic, is there? Maybe there is magic, says Bully. Maybe there's wishes, too. I guess the trouble is there's not enough people around to believe. So, um, before I get to my actual review, I'm going to go through a brief talent rundown of this episode. This episode stars Ivan Dixon as Bully Jackson. This is his first of two Twilight Zone episodes. The next we'll see of him is in season five of the show, episode 26, I Am the Night, Color Me Black. He also appeared in three episodes of The Outer Limits. Um, he appeared in, in the, in, the Outer Limits, he appeared in The Human Factor in 1963, and in parts one and two of The Inheritors in 1964. He was best known for his role in Hogan's Heroes, and he actually became a director in 1970. Um, also appearing in this episode as the young uh, Henry Temple is Stephen Perry. This is his only episode of The Twilight Zone, and I couldn't really find much information about him. Um, he's best known for roles in A Raisin in the Sun in 1970, or 1961, uh, The Learning Tree in 1969, and The Sound and the Fury in 1959. Other than that, I couldn't really find much information about him. Writer for this episode was Rod Serling, and uh, he's quoted as saying at the time, he said... Television, like its big sister, the motion picture, has been guilty of the sin of omission. Hungry for talent, desperate for the so-called new face, constantly searching for a transfusion of new blood, it has overlooked a source of wondrous talent that resides under its nose. He said that re regarding uh, the African-American actor, um, which this episode was groundbreaking because it was, it was revolutionary because it aired with, I mean, it was a nearly all black cast and at the at the time this was just unheard of on on television and it was a uh, really well respected for that or at least it is today director for this episode is Ron Winston we previously saw his work on the phenomenal the monsters are due on maple street and this is his second of three Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, his next and last one will be all the way in season five, episode 30, Stop Over in a Quiet Town. Um, he also directed one episode of Way Out, a sci-fi horror anthology series hosted by Roald Dahl, and died in 1973 at the age of 40. So having gone through the talent rundown for the episode, um, I'm going to start by briefly just saying what I knew about this episode. Um, I knew previous to this, nothing, <laughs> as I said earlier, I didn't know much of anything about this episode. I didn't even know it was about boxing or anything. Um, <laughs> somewhat embarrassingly, um, I assumed that this episode was about a kid who wished that he was an adult. Um, I really don't know why. I don't know if there's an episode later in the series that has this, or if I was just thinking, uh, I don't know if I was just assuming because I saw, um, like the, I saw a screen grab of the episode which showed, uh, Henry Temple 
in a in a kind of prayer stance. Um, so I don't know if that just made me think, oh, he must make a wish to be an adult or whatever. Um, so <laughs> it's actually funny, something kind of inside baseball here at the uh, podcast. But um, last week's episode at the end, I don't remember if I edited this out or not, but at the end I mentioned uh, that I wasn't sure what my bonus review for the next week would be. And at one point in the recording I said, maybe I'll, maybe I'll review big um, the Tom Hanks movie. <laughs> for the big doll wish because I genuinely thought that the episode was about, about a kid making a wish to be an adult or be big. Um, so uh, like immediately after recording that episode, kind of somewhat of a ritual with me as I watch the next episode or watch the next episode in line. Um, cause I like to kind of have production wise. I like to keep a few episodes going at the same time. Um, so after that night I sat down and watched the big tall wish. And then when I got around to editing it, I, I believe I went ahead and cut it out. So, so that's a little bit of a trivia for the podcast, I guess. So I'll just say up front, I really enjoyed what this episode was saying. The statements about, um, how we lose, how we lose that childlike sense of wonder and that child, um, that childlike sense of, um, magic and, and that belief in magic. I, I really appreciated what this episode said, but um, I had some, some issues here and there, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But first, I kind of want to break down some of the technical aspects of it. This episode has some interesting uh, set decoration or, or uh, sets, essentially. So I kind of liked that there's this sign for palm reading that's outside of the apartment building where Bully leaves. Um, I have no idea if that was intentionally placed there, but I like it. I, I kind of get the sense that, like, back in the 60s, and correct me if I'm wrong, please, um, back in the 60s, we didn't really, um, film and television didn't really have that sense of, or not film and television, but mostly television, didn't have that sense of set decoration or that subtle subtle cues here and there, something that's really uh, popular today. Like, uh, I know that a lot of rabid fans for television shows like to pick apart little minute details. Um about things and, and a lot of shows service that kind of craving. Like I'm, I'm thinking of, uh, the directors for Breaking Bad would have a lot of stuff in the background and people would pick them apart and everything. Mostly it was just, it seemed like a lot of it was in the, in the audience's head, but, uh, that's neither here nor there. But anyway, I like that there's in this episode about growing up or, or losing that sense of magic, letting the world beat you down and then beating, be, <laughs> Beating a child, I'm sorry for this phrasing, beating a child's sense of, of wonder and magic out of him. Um, I like that there is this, just this sign in the background, an innocuous sign for palm reading. I thought that was kind of nice, a nice touch, intentional or not. Um, also, there's a scene later in the episode, um, at kind of close to the end of the first act, where Bully punches the wall when he is threatening the uh, shady manager guy. Um I didn't think it was the best effect. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of an awkwardly edited and awkwardly cut scene, but I mean, it, it's passable and I mean, I'm, I'm not, it didn't detract from the episode for me, but I thought it just, it looked like it could have been a little bit better, but for all I know, it could have been the best that the show could do at the time. So that's possible. Um, also it was interesting. There was this, in, um, after the first act, we were brought into the fight, and there are several close-ups of the crowd's hands uh, during the fight. And at first, I found that kind of off-putting. Like, 
we it it's effective in that it shows um the sense of it gives a sense of a large crowd or a large arena and it gives a sense of you know excitement and everything without having to show the actual fight but i was glad when we actually saw some boxing in it because i thought that, that would've been a little bit of a i guess cop out would be the word um if we hadn't seen any of it uh if we if we hadn't seen any of it, I, overall I wasn't really crazy about that technique, but I did like that the that an aspect of it was um, was meant to reinforce Bully's injured hand in the audience's mind because um, it's a close up of hands after we've just seen him break his knuckles, um, and I did like the callback when when the time was froze because it's very uh, when the time was unfrozen he goes back into the ring after. Uh, confronting Henry after he won. Um, I like the visual cue of it, showing that again and showing everyone frozen and then unfreezing it. Um, just because it's a good visual cue. Um, it's it's a very distinctive style that they chose to do, and so you kind of know immediately that it's unfreezing it is means it's a new a new version of it. Um, so I liked that. And overall, really, uh, from a writing perspective, I'm really impressed with how this episode. Um, managed to uh, juggle such a uh, unique story. Um, the story has two alternate um, second acts, and the pacing and the way that it's presented feels so smooth and and easygoing that um, it's impressive because that is a technique or that is a that is something that seems like it would be really difficult to pull off effectively. And they did it really well in this episode, and I really liked that about it. Finally, regarding the actual boxing again, the boxing scene where we see kind of the last couple couple punches. Um, I like the POV shot when uh, when Bully gets uh, taken down. Um, I, I I liked that uh, perspective on it. I thought that was pretty good. So to go to kind of go back to the beginning of the episode and talk about it from a plot standpoint, beat by beat. I really like the opening scene with Bully. Um, with Bully Jackson and Henry, it's just it's it's such a great uh, piece of writing in in that in that opening scene because um, the dialogue is just so wonderful and it explains our characters in the situation so elegantly. Like there's so much said about about Bully Jackson in that opening scene. Um, we get the necessary exposition from the flyers advertising the fight. Um, we see how good he is with Henry, and that gives us the it kind of gives us permission to root for him as a character, as a protagonist. And finally, the way that he describes the scars on his face and talks about his hardships and how um, he says a fighter. A fighter don't need a scrapbook. It's uh, it's painted all over his face with the scars, and he goes through his history with so so much of the things that are marring his face. Um, the way that he talks about that and about his hardships, it just it makes us sympathize him, uh, sympathize with him instantly, and uh, and want to to see him succeed in a great deal. And it's really punctuated by him saying that he is. Uh, trying to catch a bus that left a couple years ago and refers to it as a bus, as a bus to glory. And it's just, it's, it's really both relatable because it speaks to this, for him, uh, both a literal and figurative pain that comes from a lifetime of hard work because he's literally had 
his hope and dreams beaten out of him. And that's something that, unfortunately for some people, may be definitely relatable. And it's kind of uh, easy to sympathize with someone who is so um, so open and, and uh, sad about, about his lot. Not his lot in life, but his how his life hasn't turned out the way that he intended. And I really respect the episode for that. And the the camaraderie or the friendship between Henry and Bully is so feels so genuine and 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 um so nice and friendly. Um we don't have any idea what the nature of the friendship is. We don't know why um Bully is seemingly spending time with um what it's not really made clear, but perhaps possibly a neighbor's kid. Um, we don't know where, where, uh, Henry's father is. We don't know if there's a relationship between bully and, um, the mother. It's just kind of there that there's this camaraderie. It's, it kind of reminded me a little bit of, uh, uh, one for the angels with, uh, Bookman's, uh, friendship with the kids in, in the apartment building. So the episode goes, actually, after the sequence and everything, the episode kind of goes an extra mile to show how well-liked Bully is by everyone. Um, when he leaves to go to the fight, um, everyone's cheering him on, telling him to, telling him that they're, uh, uh, they're excited for him, they're giving him uh, a pep talk and everything. Um, and it's funny because later that kind of takes a little bit of a, a twist because it's later kind of revealed that their support is or at least seems contingent on his success. Um, he's still a well-liked guy, but you can see the disappointment in, in the, uh, the friends after he's lost the fight. And it's kind of, it's kind of, it's kind of sad because it shows that there's a lot on his shoulders. And that also comes into play a little bit earlier when he is talking to Henry's mother and he mentions that, uh, the world has, that basically reiterating that he's been beaten down by the world. Um, he just asks what, who comes along to push children's face to the concrete and say, the earth is, the world is, is this, it's not, there's no magic. There's, this is what the world is. And it's particularly heartbreaking because bully eventually does this to Henry, uh, figuratively speaking. And so, so up until this point, we've gotten a sense of who Bully is. He's this kind of, he's a downtrodden guy, but he's well-liked and he's relatable. He's hes a good person at heart. And then there's a sequence where he is preparing to go in for the fight. And he's talking to um, his trainer and Thomas, who seems, he's a shady, I, I guess manager would be would be who he is. I'm, I'm not really clear on what his role was, but Thomas is the shady manager and it's up until that point we have we've seen a lot of people just show complete respect for for bully and thomas is this really just slimy unlikable guy and what i love about that is it's it could have been a cartoonish kind of not villain role but it could have been just a cartoonish like like way to reinforce bully's status but Instead, it, it does, it does stay, it, it doesn't, it does say what, uh, some people perceive Bully to be. He's kind of a washed up has been. But I love, I love how much power Bully exudes in, in that scene. Um, he's intimidating to Thomas. 
um, like telling him to butt out the cigar and, and threatening him to the point where Thomas is absolutely terrified. Um, and I just, I just really like that even though Bully hasn't attained the heights and, and the fame that he wanted to, he still has authority and power over people who are trying to take advantage of him and, and, uh, continue to beat him down in the world. I just really, I just really like that. So after the fight, after the outcome of the fight, after the big tall wish is made and Bully wins the fight, um, this episode is surprisingly just overall, this episode is surprisingly poignant and, and touching in that Bully is so convinced. He is so, he is so not willing to accept that magic exists and that, and that the world has magic. He is so beaten down by the world that he is willing to completely ignore the truth of what happened and is willing to accept that the outcome was logical and due to his own um, abilities. And that's where the episode works best for me. Because as I've said numerous times throughout this review, Bully has been so beaten down by the world. It's, it's that him being beaten down by the world has caused him to tear the magic out of Henry's world. And it's sad and it's heartbreaking, but when you get down to it, Bully is so wrapped up in himself and is such a victim of his cynicism that I kind of, I kind of think that maybe a part of him resents Henry's childlike imagination. Maybe he resents this um, notion that he that Henry can believe in magic when, when Bully just can't accept it. And sadly, a lot of that, at least I, I feel is, is sadly kind of relatable. Um, when you're an adult, you kind of lose that sense of wonder and that sense of magic. And, and it's just, it's just sad because you know, you know that problems can't be fixed with a wish and that you can't wish your way to a better life or get what you want. Not everything works out the way that you want it to in life. Um, and it just, it resonates with me that what happens between Bully and Henry here is just sad because Bully is so possessed by his cynicism and his view of the world that, that he just unwittingly or unintentionally, uh, takes that wonder from Henry. He robs Henry of what, what is, by Bully's own um, explanation or or his his perspective, um, robs Henry of that last bastion of hope and and magic in in a life that uh, will soon be beaten down to him from Bully's perspective. But the episode isn't only about how children lose their sense of wonder; it's also about how adults turn their back away from the magic of childhood and um it's just it's just heartbreaking to see bully just flat out not accept the circumstances or the truth of what happened because from his perspective he can't afford to let the magic in um not because he can't believe it it's because that would mean that he didn't achieve his dreams himself he didn't uh do it he didn't he wasn't successful on his own merit and Bully feels that he's just simply too old to have hope in his life and to believe in magic and to believe that he can um, let magic in after it's been 
so forcefully taken out of his life by circumstance and, and a life of hardship. And what's so beautiful and heartbreaking about this um, situation is that Henry idolizes Bully. He, he views Bully on a, he puts Bully on a pedestal. He's his, he's his close good friend. Uh, so when Bully isn't receptible to magic or receptive to magic, he takes, Henry takes it to heart. And that causes him to cast his childlike wonder aside. And it's just, it becomes this poignant piece about how growing up sucks. <laughs> and I don't think it's anything Bully intended in, in the, in the episode or in the scene. Um, he didn't mean to push Henry's face against the concrete of the world. It's just, it's just what happened. And that makes the scene at the end after, after the, uh, wish has been reversed and after everyone's disappointed and after he goes to see Henry and offer to take him to a hockey game and, and to get, um, uh, hot dogs, I think. Um, that, that scene at the end after everything that's happened is so beautiful and tragic with, with just a sliver of hope in it with, with the final line that, that hen, uh, that bully gives to Henry, because um, it's somewhat like they've switched places. Uh, Henry isn't going to be making any more wishes. He he knows that it's he sees that it's silly now, or that um, that there's no such thing as magic. But you, we get a sliver of hope in that bully is open to the idea of magic in the world, and that um, it's just a problem of people believing. So it ends on kind of a high note. Um, and it's just it's just a really sweet, poignant end, and really uh, wonderful. Um, as in terms of uh, plotting and and the uh, the message that it was that it was conveying. And in terms of performances, um, obviously Ivan Ivan Dixon and Stephen Perry drive the entire episode, and I I gotta say that Ivan Dixon was really good at carrying this episode. He played such a great um protagonist that's like you get the sense that he's beaten down and and you you know what he's going through and how he's feeling um it's just it's just a really great performance on his part um regarding Stephen Perry I I got to say I'm really I really wasn't crazy about his performance um at times it kind of felt a little underwritten like um like when he, like when he is, uh, pleading with the television and just repeating, saying bully, 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 just the way that he says it is something about it just irks me a little bit. Um, and then, so, so that felt like underwritten, like, like, like there wasn't enough emotion there or there, it was trying to convey, convey emotion, but it just didn't really work for me. Um, and then in other scenes, it seemed a little over the top. Um, and I, I understand, like, it's a child actor. He, Stephen Perry is a child actor at that point, And it's, it's, you know, you can only get such a good performance out of a child actor. I mean, it's, it's a really difficult feat to pull off. Um, and we'll talk more about that when I review Nightmare as a Child. But, um, at points it gets kind of over the top. Like when he, when he pleads with Bully, he says like, Bully, you got to believe. And I don't know, the, the way that that, there's something about the delivery of that and the way that the way that it's the way that that scene reached a crescendo it, it something about it just didn't really work for me that well 
Um, it, so the whole performance just felt kind of uneven to me. Um, but he wasn't terrible. He, he wasn't terrible. It just, I wasn't crazy about his performance. Um, this is completely apropos of nothing. Um, but Walter Burke, the, who plays Joe, the, the trainer, I just think he looked a lot like Willem Dafoe and that's it. That, that's all I have on that performance. Um, completely pointless, uh, inclusion in this episode but anyway um in terms of cultural subtext and theme i already kind of touched on throughout the entire review that uh, this episode is about childlike uh, that childlike sense of wonder and magic and and how the world can tear it away from you and and um when you're an adult it's a juxtaposition of wishing and and having that sense of magic when you're a child versus having the world beat that sense of wonder out of you and just the just the juxtaposition of those two things and the way that the the way that the characters that represent each side kind of intermingle and and end up kind of in a somewhat reversal at the end is just really really engaging and really poignant and really says a lot about how we perceive the world and how we internalize um internalize the the way we perceive the world and i i really appreciate the episode about the uh, for that and obviously there's a obviously this episode is groundbreaking because um of its all nearly all Af- uh, african american cast and it's just it's it's really uh it's really nice to see that diversity so so early in uh in television's life. I, I don't know if early is the right word. So, but, um, I mean, this was 1960. That's, that's just crazy to me. I, I, I love seeing that. And I'm, I'm really happy that the twilight zone had that, um, progressive quality to it, even at the, even at the time. Uh, so trivia for this episode, as I mentioned before, uh, nearly all African American cast was revolutionary for American television. And this episode was actually, um, or at least in, in 1961, the Twilight Zone itself was awarded the 1961 Unity Award for outstanding contribute, uh, contributions to better race relations, which is fantastic. Some other pieces of trivia, uh, Walter Burke, the aforementioned Willem Dafoe doppelganger, uh, <laughs> And uh, Charles Horvath, who plays Dixon's opponent in the wi- in the ring, uh, they actually both appeared in an episode of Lawman. Uh, Lawman um, seven months later, uh, the episode was titled "Lawman Samson the Great," um, and the episode also involved boxing, um, which is somewhat unique and interesting, I guess. Um, it's a tangential piece of trivia. Um, trivia is kind of sparse this this week, guys. Um, final piece of trivia is that real life boxer, Archie Moore, uh, he was considered for the role of Bully Jackson. So, yeah. Closing thoughts for this episode. I thought it was a solid episode with, uh, a lot to kind of chew on and a lot of, uh, a lot of statements about what it is to be an adult versus what it is to be a child and, and what it is to lose what you lose in between those phases of your life. This episode is clearly groundbreaking for its cast of predominantly black actors, and it's a touching story filled with uh, vulnerability and, sadly, um, quite a bit of relatability. And for that, I I really enjoy this episode. Um, 
uh, it remains to be seen how I'll feel about it at the end of at the end of the first season if it, if it'll make my rankings or whatnot. But um, overall, a really touching episode, and um, I really like when the show conveys these big these big statements about about existence and and about our place in the world. And with it being such a diverse cast and such a groundbreaking episode, what I love about it is that that's not a a focal point of the episode at all. It doesn't have anything to do with, with race or anything. And that's one of the things that I find so endearing about it. Um, especially airing in 1960 is that it's such, it's so amazing that, that anyone could have been in those roles, but they have African-American actors. And that just, the fact that it doesn't call attention to that at all is just so wonderful to me. And I, and I really appreciate that. And I appreciate the twilight zone, even more because of that. So overall, I I enjoyed it. I really liked what it had to say, and it gave me a lot to uh to digest. So that'll do it for my review of the Big Tall Wish. Um, before we move on to this week's bonus review, here's a highlight from episode 173 of The Obsessive Viewer. It's a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny over at obsessiveviewer.com. Indiana. Awesome, and uh, we've been asking people all weekend, what uh, franchise or movie or TV show would you revamp, revive, remake, whatever you want to call it, uh, and why would you do it? So uh, do you have an answer for that? Actually, after much thought and much discussion, the Tron series. The original Tron film was great. I loved it growing up. When Tron Legacy came out in, um, what, 2010, 2011, that that was very good. I really, really enjoyed that. And one of the first films I actually saw in Disney 3D, too. And uh, the animated series that was on Disney XD, Tron Uprising, that was very good. A lot of the effects seemed to have come from the uh, Legacy movie. A lot of the voice, uh, some of the voice actors that could come over from it. They keep saying they're going to make more of the films and maybe continue the series. And I'm like, give it to me, Disney. I need this. I need more light cycles. I need to see the newest iteration of the tanks. Give this to me, Disney. Of course, you can find The Obsessive Viewer on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at obsessiveviewer.com. And you can find a clip, or I'm sorry, you can find the episode you just heard a clip from at obsessiveviewer.com slash OV173. Okay, and for this week's bonus review, I'm going to be reviewing Requiem for a Heavyweight. It was episode two of Playhouse 90's first season, and uh, it aired on October 11th, 1956, starring Jack Palance, Keenan Wynn, Ed Wynn, and Kim Hunter, directed by Ralph Nelson, who will go on to direct uh, the finale of season one of, uh, of uh, The Twilight Zone, I believe. And written by Rod Serling. I'll start the review with a quick, um, quick, uh, plot summary. This will be spoiler free, so don't worry about spoilers. Um, the IMDb description is an over the hill heavyweight boxing champion who suffers from the ravages of years of head trauma is exploited by his manager despite the efforts of a compassionate young woman who tries to help him recover his self respect. And it's worth noting that this, uh, that this episode of Playhouse 90 was the first original 90 minute drama ever shown live on television. And, uh, you can now watch it in its entirety on YouTube. I'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to, uh, check it out. So what struck me the most about this, about this, uh, story 
was that the opening was very similar to The Big Tall Wish. Um, it utilized a shot of a flyer to kind of bring us into the um, to the world and, and to what's going on. Very effective and very efficient way to divulge exposition. And just from the outset, just I, I have to say, I really admire uh, the idea of the live teleplay. Um, cause you can see like all the, everything that's working together to, to kind of come together to be this, uh, to be this complete storyline or this complete performance live on the air. It's, it's really, it's really quite incredible. And I kind of wish that that, that that concept, I kind of wish that that would be something that would, uh, resonate or, or that would take, that would reemerge today. That's something that we don't really by my perspective, I don't think we really see that much of it on on television these days. I mean, it's a lot to do, it's a lot to uh, do. Obviously, um, obviously, like things like Saturday Night Live, those those can count. But I mean, this is a complete performance, a complete story, a complete. It's a play on film, <laughs> somewhat, and it's just it's it's really charming that this. Uh, to to go back and see this and it's it's humbling as as a fan of television um to see all the work that went in uh to these performances in in this show and from the outset i mean jack palance man holy crap this was such an incredible performance um by him he plays such an incredibly sympathetic character he's both playful with his with his managers and and with uh with with characters he's so playful but he is he's he's fragile and he's he knows he knows that he's not the best mind like he knows that he is his his mind has been damaged and and it's it's taken one or two uh too many punches and he can't really function that well so the episode or the sh- the story opens with him losing a fight, and that's essentially the the doctor played by uh, the plot the doctor played by Edgar Staley, um, who has such a distinctive voice. Like like the quality of the YouTube uh, video that I was watching of it wasn't that great, but like um, and I was I was jotting down notes as I was watching it. But like when I heard his voice, I was like, that's that's Edgar Staley. That's uh, he's such he's such a charming presence but he delivers the news that that mountain mcclintock played by uh jack palance can't fight anymore because he's taken too many to he's he's too damaged and he he can't fight anymore so that propels this episode or this this story into a story about this man this fragile broken man um dealing with the loss of his dream to, to become a heavyweight champion um, while also trying to adjust into a normal life or, or a life that isn't what he dreamed. And this is all compounded by the fact that one of his, um, that one of his managers has effectively bet against him and now is in deep with a bookie. And it goes to some really heart wrenching places because this, this manager is against Figuratively, he's, um, no pun intended, but he's against the ropes by this bookie. So he's trying to get, it, it comes to a point where he tries to get McClintock or the mountain, uh, mountain to forsake his last bit of dignity in order to save the manager. And it's just, it's so, it's so effective 
uh, in storytelling in as a story as a piece of storytelling because from the beginning you see that this that this that this uh, fighter and his two managers like they have this nice little family unit going um, that feels so so genuine and so warm that it's when we when it's revealed that the that one of the managers has had bet against him it's just it's 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 hurtful it 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 sucks it's 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 painful to watch um and then there's some there's a dichotomy between the two between the two agents there's or the managers there's um uh, i don't know if they're technically managers or agents i don't know what they are but um there's army who is uh, the older of the two it's keenan when he is the more compassionate he's he's the more friendly he's the more he's more in line and uh he has mountains best interests at heart and then you have on the flip side of that you have mesh played by edwin who is um using using mountain for financial gain and you trying to um he's made a he made a bad bet against him and now he's in deep and he's trying to um essentially exploit mountain to help him out of a jam without mountain knowing that he betrayed him essentially and there's a lot of really really touching moments between mesh and mountain that um just really hammers home how much mountain cares for him and it's it's just heartbreaking to watch and i won't go into spoilers about how it how it turns out or what or, or anything but it's really effective and, and i really like the story as it was told um there's also some interesting stuff between um army and mountain there's there's a scene where army is helping mountain try to get a job he's at an employ at an employment agency and he is it's it's such a touching it's such a it's such a warm moment because you have this you have this slightly not brain damaged but um you have this prize prize you have this uh you have this fighter who is not all there and he is aware that he isn't able to function in normal society and isn't willing to um or he's he's hesitant to get into a real job so he's in this employment office and he's depending on army for support and there's this really touching scene where he where mountain is called in to uh to an interview and army says to him that uh uh that he can't go in with him but he says that he is um he says God, it's such it's such a nice line. I love this piece of dialogue. So, uh, Mountain gets called in. He's walking into into the into the room, um, and then he he looks back at Army and he asks him, "Hey, I need you to come in with me. I need you in there with me. I need your help." And Army just says, "I gotta stay ringside. I can't be in the fight." And there's something so endearing about that, and it's so touching that you have this guy who's terrified and, and this guy who's unsure about what he's, what he's going to do. And you have someone who's so compassionate and so, so friendly to him and such a supportive person. And he's contextualizing the situation into something that mountain can perceive and, and understand. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. I just, I love it. And, um, after that, you have the scene where, uh, there's a scene where he is in the interview with, with the, uh, employment agency. And, uh, it's just, it's, it's so touching because you get, you get so much heart out of, out of Jack Palance's performance. Like he is so, he's so downtrodden, but he, it's, 
he's so timid and afraid and it's just so touching and so heartwarming and um that that evolves into this uh romantic subplot with him and Kim Hunter um who throughout the throughout the uh, story um Kim Hunter like like there's such a great sweetness to their scenes together um they kind of go out a couple times and and it's just this really endearing sweetness to it that you can't you can't not you can't not just fall in love with with these performers and and you just root so much for uh mountain in the in this story it's it's really remarkable it's really strong storytelling i absolutely loved it i can't i can't overstate how fantastic jack palance is in that in this uh in this episode um and just it's it's really sweet when they spend time together. And again, I won't go into spoilers or anything, but there's a moment where mountain said like gets really passionate and he's talking about fighting and he's talking about a story about fighting. And then Kim Hunter's character says, she says, um, she says there isn't much else besides fighting. And it's kind of a sad moment because she kind of realizes that this is what this man's life is all about. And it's something that maybe she can't really level with or she can't really connect with that much. But um, there's a sweet underlying thing to it that she's going to teach him about things. And she's going to um, they're going to theoretically spend time together and, and he's going to learn his place in the world um, after losing his only the only thing he knows. And it's just such a wonderful, wonderful story. I, I really spoiler alert for the rest of the review i really loved this episode and i thought it was remarkable and i can see definitely why it was such a such a hit when it aired back in 56 and this actually led to a movie directed by ralph nelson as well um in uh several years later i don't remember the year but um but I'll be reviewing that in my review of the last episode of season one of the twilight zone um a world of his own, I believe. But anyway, um, all said, I, I won't go into what, what all happens in the, in the last act of the, of the story, but, um, I will say that things, things ramp up, things get to a point where you are really invested in the story and the characters and what's going to happen. And it's, it's really satisfying to watch it all play out. And I highly recommend going to YouTube, checking out this, this, uh, this story, this, this show, this episode, this movie, this teleplay, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But I highly recommend checking it out. And it's just, it's really, it's really fantastic. I really loved it. Um, it's Requiem for a Heavyweight, uh, from Playhouse 90 in, uh, aired on October 11th, 1956. Um, so I think that wraps up my review of Requiem for a Heavyweight and it's, uh, wraps up this episode pretty, uh, pretty cleanly i i would i don't know if i would say cleanly i don't know i'm stumbling um my throat's sore anyway <laughs> uh once again uh feel free to email me your thoughts on this episode of anthology or past episodes future episodes anything you want to send me is good with me matt at obsessiveviewer.com and uh let's see i'm currently again once again i'm currently going through i don't think i mentioned it beforehand but um i'm currently going through black mirror 
um, in, bo- in releasing bonus reviews of each episode leading up to season three, premiering October 21st on Netflix. Uh, make sure you go check that out. It, if you're not familiar with Black Mirror, if you're only coming into anthology for the Twilight Zone reviews, um, I, I highly recommend checking out Black Mirror. It's likened a lot or it's, it's compared a lot to a modern Twilight Zone for the digital age. Um, and it, and it's, it's very, it's very, it's it's such an incredible show. Um, I highly recommend it. It's it's really it's really amazing. Um, it's available on uh, Netflix, and be sure to check that out and uh, check out my bonus reviews that I'm releasing. Hopefully, that I'm releasing hopefully on schedule. <laughs> I'm going to be recording my episode reviewing uh, the entire history of you shortly after I record this episode, and I have to say this Black Mirror is. I find so much resonance in the show that I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of the reviews that I've been posting about it. And I'm excited for people to hear them and hear this one coming up. So be sure to check those out and let me know what you think of the bonus review format and, and everything about it. Um, and anything that you would want me to ex- spend an extended period of time reviewing in bonus episodes, um, other anthology shows, other uh, related things, uh, what have you. Um, so once again, you can email me, Matt at, obsess- at wow, Matt at ObsessiveViewer.com. Also tweet me at ObsessiveViewer. And uh, next week on the podcast, I'll be reviewing A Nice Place to Visit, which is the 28th episode of The Twilight Zone's first season. And the bonus review is going to be uh, a movie from 1962 called Premature Burial, that is available on Amazon Prime Instant right now. So be sure you check that out before uh, next week's episode comes out. And that'll do it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, I really uh, can't wait to uh, hear from you guys. And I'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find more episodes at AnthologyPod.com, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast app. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please take a few minutes to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. The more reviews I get, the higher the show will be ranked in iTunes search results, making it easier for people to discover it and grow the podcast. Of course, you can always email me your thoughts and feelings about the show to matt at obsessiveviewer.com. You can also tweet me at obsessiveviewer, like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash anthologypod, or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 317-762-6099 for a chance to have it played on the show. If you like what you've heard here, I urge you to check out The Obsessive Viewer, a weekly movie and TV podcast I host with my friends Mike and Tiny. Also check out the Obsessive Viewer blog at ObsessiveViewer.com where I write movie reviews, TV reviews, and the occasional editorial about the business of entertainment. If you want even more obsessive content in your life, subscribe to the Obsessive Viewer subreddit at r slash obsessive viewer and check out ObsessiveBookNerd.com, our sister site for book reviews, author spotlights, and a general celebration of reading. Finally, if you're philosophically curious check out my friend Tiny's side project podcast, The Secular Perspective, which explores the concepts of faith, religion, and existence from the perspective of secular hosts. You can find that at thesecularperspective.com. Once again, thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.